0: Laura and i that's my wife. Uh, we are in the midst right now of uh, some pretty exciting times uh, because our daughters our four year old twins are are in the process of sort of looking for kindergartens right now that's the big that's the big thing in our home is we're looking for kindergartens for our kids and you know um It's a bit of a nervous thing because, you know, elementary school is kind of, it can be a little hard for little girls, and I can remember middle school for me, uh, kids being really mean. Uh, I was the mean kid, and I can never, I'll never forget um, coming home one night, I mean coming home one day to my father's ire and upsetness because I had spat upon some boys at school. Uh, You know, bullies, um, what are you going to do with them? Um, I still remember it, and I still remember getting in trouble for it. But there is new help out there for bullies in the school system. Um, According to a particular Nebraska school district, there are some helpful facts and things to believe about bullies that can help you if you're getting bullied and know how that you can adapt your behavior in light of these awesome facts. Well, if you can't sense the sarcasm yet, you will after we read some of them, of these very helpful nine rules in dealing with bullies. We'll touch on a few right here. Here we go. Take number two for starters. Rule number two. Treat the person who is being mean as if they are really trying to help you. No matter how insulting or mean they may sound, be grateful and think that they really care about you. So, kids, in other words, that mean guy who is punching you in the shoulder and stealing your lunch money every day, well, be grateful that he really cares about you. Thanks, rule number two. Also, uh, let's take a look at rule. I've actually got them up here. Take a look at uh, rule number seven. Here, You can't really see it. There it is. Rule number seven tells us don't tell on bullies. The number one reason bullies hate their victims is because their victims tell on them. Well, thanks to the truth in this premise, bullies will hate you the more you tell on them. You too can help ensure that the power differential never changes and you still get picked on. Thank you, rule number seven. My personal favorite, lastly, awesome rule number nine down here. Here it is. This is amazing. Learn to laugh at yourself and not get hooked by put downs here we go make a joke out of it or agree with the put down for example you think i'm ugly you should see my sister (laughs) or thanks for noticing you can just hear the insult right Well, as you can tell, this here is the real silver bullet of dealing with bullies. Let your behavior be like that of a walking mat. Kids, you won't need that self-esteem later on in life anyways. Or just pass the shame right on to someone else. They'll be grateful that you did. Craziness, right? To be true and to be fair, the state of Nebraska came back and said, we don't know what happened. We totally apologize, the whole deal. But here's the logic of this brilliant advice. Ready? You need to change your behavior toward bullies if you don't want to get picked on. And to change your behavior, you need to change your beliefs about bullies and yourself. And so, but I want you to see this. What does any of this have to do with what we're talking about in Judges chapter 11? Well, here it is. Beliefs drive behaviors. And that belief-driving behavior concept is something that all of us understand and know. Here's I, another way of saying it. We act out of what we believe and know to be true. You said it again. We, be, we act out of what we believe and know to be true. And the same holds true for Jephthah, Israel's judge in chapter 11 of Judges. You see, God's people in general, and then Jephthah in particular, do not know or understand, it's a phrase I'm going to use tonight, the logic of grace. They don't understand the logic of grace. And because they don't, they find themselves in all sorts of problems and in trouble. And here's the thing, y'all. Lest we think that we're any different, we too struggle with all aspects of our lives before God. Precisely because we don't believe God's heart and His character as it's been revealed to us in the Scriptures. So tonight, we're going to look at this promise, this vow that Jephthah makes and the real tragedy in it. And to do so, we're going to consider just two headings, the tragic promise and the tragic premise. The tragic promise and the tragic premise. I'll explain more as we go along, but let's take a look first of all at the tragic promise first. So again, I'm going to reference back up in chapter 10 if you have your Bible, but uh, let's take a look at the tragic promise. Before we can really understand um, what all is going on in the promise itself, this promise that Jephthah made, we need to go back and understand a little bit about the history. The people of God have really uh, miffed. They've really blown it. They continue to blown it. We heard last week about this cruel this cruel, cruel ruler who was made king, Abimelech. And God has rescued and delivered his people from him through his death. And other judges have come, raised up, and protected and delivered God's people. But in chapter 10, verse 6, we're told this. That God's people did, again, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now, Baals and Ashtoreths are just the, the rival nations, the surrounding nations' gods. And God's people have left him, his name being Yahweh, and have now begun to bow down and to give their allegiance, to give their hearts, and as we'll soon see, to give other things as well over to these gods. Well, what happens next? They had turned away from God. And now at this point, an outside political force, known the people of Ammon, the Ammonites, the Ammonites, Are now oppressing them, we see in chapter 10, verse 4. And the Israelites, the ones that are oppressed, are crying out to God, saying, We've sinned and we're miserable. Will you help us out? Now, interestingly, for the first time, God says no. He says no. It's almost as if his patience is worn out. And they they say, We've put away the gods, we've put away from the idols. And the Lord says this in chapter 10. It's beautiful. And Underline this verse in your Bible. Go back and meditate on it because it will warm your soul. It says this, verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And I love this phrase. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Y'all see that? That God grew tired of their misery, so he delivered them. Do you know that you have a God that grows tired of your misery? That's an amazing, beautiful concept that God moves swiftly in to meet you and to care for you because of your misery. Well, moving on then, we learn that the Ammonites draw up battle lines against Israel and are ready to fight them and Jephthah as their leader. Now, Jephthah enters the story here as a man with a sordid past. We learn, if we were to read up in chapter 11, that he's hanging around with worthless fellows, is what it says. But Jephthah, if you'll look at it, Judges chapter 11, verse 1, it says that he was a mighty warrior. He was also the son of a prostitute. And Jephthah is asked by the leaders of this part of Israel as they basically say, Hey, will you come fight for us? Will you come be our leader, our head, our king? And if you do, um, we will grant you, you know, basically rulership over us. And Jephthah, for reasons that we See later, see later, he makes a vow to the Lord basically saying this, this, this vow of God, if you'll let me win and beat the Ammonites, I, uh, I will, I will get, I will offer up worship to you. And we'll see that in just a moment what I'm talking about. So he makes a vow. That's what I'm trying to get at. Jephthah makes a vow. Now a vow is just very simply, it is a solemn promise. Okay? Uh, through the years, one of the greatest privileges I have is that I get to marry you all when you decide you want to get married. I mean some of you asked me to come do this. That's really, really fun. And I think that you know there's a lot of stuff associated in and around a wedding. You know, some of you might be planning a wedding right now, or you're going to one. You gotta think about flowers and dresses and where we're gonna have the reception and all that sort of fun stuff. But really for a wedding, you only need three things. People ask me all the time, they say, well, can you help us with the ceremony? I'm like, well, how simple do you want it? Because you really only need three things. You need an efficient, and you got me, so check. Secondly, you need somebody to witness this. So just one other person besides the three of us. Uh, and that's all you need. And then thirdly, you know what else you need? You just need a promise. That's all you need. You just need a vow. And that's what, that's what, that's what is a solemn promise. And so when Jephthah makes a promise to God, he is making a very, very serious vow. He is saying, I commit myself to doing this if you will act, O Lord. And so we read in verses 30 and 31. You saw it there when we read it earlier. On your sheet it says this, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a whole or a burnt offering. A whole or a burnt offering was the complete consumption uh, of an animal in the sacrificial system uh, unto, unto, unto the Lord. Well, the Lord delivers the Ammonites into the justice hand. We, we see that, and he returns home, and guess what happens? What happens? The tambourines begin to sound. Because his daughter has heard of his victory. And she goes out like people would have done to a great military victor to celebrate and to praise and to encourage and to welcome the military victor. But what happens? In a sign of utter sadness, he rips his clothes and he begins to be filled with great sadness. And he says, oh, my daughter, you're bringing me low because of the promise that I have made to God. Because he knows what? He's made a promise. He's made a promise. And she is the first thing that has walked out of her, of his house. And immediately, Jephthah's world begins to fall apart. His daughter, agreeing that her father should do as he vowed, goes away for two months to mourn her virginity. What does that mean? It just very means this. She knows she's about to die, and therefore she is not going to have children. And so she's going to weep that. She's going to cry that out because she's never going to bear children. And what's interesting is Jephthah's line is about to be cut off because she is his only child, and she returned to her father. Verse thirty-nine, and the and here's the like apex of the of the of the uh, of the text. Who did with her according to his vow that he had made? Wow, a tragic promise that he had made. A few things to notice about this tragic promise. And I want you to see them. Some well-meaning people try to clean this up and say that Jephthah was intending to sacrifice an animal. Let me tell you three reasons why I don't think that's the case. I don't think that was the case because, one, it's not like animals lived inside the houses of the ancient Israelites. Okay, so Jephthah knew that. Secondly, the phrase, to meet me, that we see, uh, whatever comes out to meet me in, verse, um, in verses 30 and 31, that is always used uh, of, of a human interaction. Does that make sense? It's, it's a special phrase used of a human interaction. And then lastly, Jephthah, if he was really considering an a animal to walk out the door, when he saw his daughter, the promise that he had made would have, would have had no binding Influence on it. He was just be like, yeah, it's my daughter. You know, no big deal. But he responds because that's what he intends. In short, the text suggests that Jephthah knew he was committing to human sacrifice. He just didn't expect it to be his daughter walking out the door. Again, very tragic. Now, others have said that the vow was meant to be an offering up his daughter unto temple service, almost like if you know the story of Hannah, when, he, when she gave her son, into temple service. You remember uh, her son uh, Samuel. Well, I don't think that's what the text is telling us either for two reasons. One, a two-month stay of execution, a two-month stay of of, of putting that off, and a lamenting season makes absolutely no sense if she were not actually killed. And then secondly, the plain reading of the text. It tells tells us this, that Jephthah did as he vowed. So what's the summary? It's simple. Yes. Yes. Jephthah made a promise to offer up as a human sacrifice, whatever walked out of his door, should the Lord grant great victory. He did not think, however, that it would be his only daughter. And nevertheless, in keeping his vow, he offered her up as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Now, we're going to talk about why that is in just a moment, but a couple of things I think we want to pull away from this. First of all, that real sin. Affects all of us, and the Bible is just not afraid to show it. It's not, it doesn't back away from it. There is no such thing as a perfect leader or person. We are all far too sinful. The Bible is not, I think some of us think that the Bible is this like positive propaganda piece showing us the sanitary picture of God's people. Well, Judges chapter 11 just blows that out of the water. The Bible is messy in what it reports because it's talking about real people like you and me. And so therefore ultimately it cannot be a book about heroes or moral figures that we ought to follow because why? All of the figures and heroes are deeply flawed because they're people, they're men and women just like you and me. I think that's a key thing sort of takeaway that we need to see. Secondly this, this portion of Judges teaches us the importance of our words and promises though Jephthah made a rash and tragic vow, I do think that, you need to understand that the text assumes a high and prominent place on the way that we use our mouth. You see, I have an old seminary professor, his name's Jerem Bars, and Jerem used to say this, he, say, he would say that when we as Christians say that we will, like if you know, somebody comes to us like, oh, you know, man, my world's falling apart or whatever else, or this is really a struggle for me, I'm really sick, and then we say, what? I'll pray for you. And then we never do it. My seminary professor is actually right when he says that's a deeply and desperately wicked thing that we do. Because we're saying we're going to do something that we never intend to do. That's why the the, 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 the writer James, in his letter, he would say, let your yes be a yes, and let your no be a no. And so the question before you is this. Do you say, where do you say things that you will never intend to do? Where do you need to do things that you have said that you will do them? And where do you need to refrain from things that you said you would not do? And where have you said things that you will not do something with no intention of actually not doing it? You see, all of these questions are piercing. They probe us because they explore the disconnect between what our words say and what our actions actually do. And I just want to say this. Will you tonight ask the Lord for courage to live with greater congruence between the two? God will help you. But I do think this. I think for college students, this is particularly hard. Because your people, by and large, and everyone, that struggle with bailing on commitment commitments all the time. It's hard to commit to things. You'll say you'll do things, and then you bail. And I just want to say, that is a spiritual problem. It's not just temperamental. It's spiritual. And God is urging us to be men and women who when we use our words rightly, we say what we mean and we mean what we say. That's very, very critical. I think we've lost this idea of the importance of our speech. Let me transition. After seeing the tragic promise that Jephthah had made, in the keeping of it, we're left wondering with this salient question. Why did Jephthah make such a rash vow in the first place? And then secondly, why did he keep it? And to understand these whys, we have to look at Jephthah's beliefs. His beliefs that caused him to act and behave this way. It's belief driving behavior. And so therefore, we need to take a look at the tragic premise. The tragic premise. Now, what is a premise? Well, as you know, a premise is a previous statement or a proposition from which another one flows as a conclusion, right? You may remember logic and thinking through these things. A premise is something that an argument is built upon. And we see Jephthah making and performing this vow. We see his beliefs, his premises emerging. His behavior is fueled by his beliefs. And the essential thing that you need to see in this text is this, how Jephthah viewed who God was. You see, Jephthah has theological issues and problems. Where do we see it? Look with me at verse 29, the very first text. Did you read it there? It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead, etc., etc. Now, that's a very, very, very important statement connoting the presence of God On Jephthah for military success. So Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. I don't know what that looks like necessarily, but it enables him and empowers him for military success. And it's used two other times in the book of Judges. We've already read. One in chapter three, and two in chapter six, on the Judge Othniel and on the Judge Gideon, respectively. And this is what you want if you're a judge. You want that name on your jersey. Spirit of the Lord. Because what happens when that happens is that you are guaranteed success. It is 100% victory. It's like the awesome quarterback who gets up off the bench and just is known for throwing bombs and touchdowns and y'all are going to win. I mean, that's that's the image that you need to understand. And here's what's so important about this. Though victory was certain, Jephthah didn't believe that. Deep down, deep down, he believed that God, that Yahweh this is very important, was a God like the gods of the surrounding areas, the surrounding nations. You see, and here's what's so important. In order to get those gods to listen and act, extreme devotion and sacrifice were required. The degree to which you sacrificed ensured the God's work on your behalf, right? And the greater the sacrifices, the the greater, the, the greater security or hope that God would actually work for you. It was a total tit-for-tat religion. I'll do this for God, and what? He'll do this for me. And Jephthah believes that about the God of Israel, about Yahweh. And so he thinks, if I can just do this amazing thing for God, maybe God will see, and then He'll act for me. Jephthah believed that, that Yahweh was like any other relig- regional deity. I'll do this for him, and he'll do this for me. Now here's what you need to see is that Jephthah was very, very skilled with his words. He was a master negotiator. He did it with the leaders of Gilead, the Israelites. He did it with the Ammonites in his negotiations that we didn't read about. And now he thinks he can do it with God. Thus the vow in, in chapter in 11, 30, and 31 and the execution of it in verses 39. He was operating on the tragic premise That God was a God, here it is, who had to be bribed with deeds. This belief drove his behavior. I want that to set in. The premise that he had was that God was a God who had to be bribed, who had to be proved, like I have to prove to him that I'm going to do something to get him to act. Well, what conclusions can we draw? Firstly, this was a stupid vow. Like seriously. It was stupid for him to make. Jephthah never should have made it. Ever, ever, ever. God, The God of Israel completely forbids in texts like Leviticus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 18.10 co- completely forget, uh, forbids child sacrifice. It's utterly forbidden. Human sacrifice. Utterly forbidden. And yet Jephthah does it anyways. Now you might wonder well, why isn't the Bible then? Because the book of Judges, this is, you be careful. The Bible is describing something here, not prescribing something. Does that make sense? It's telling us what happened, not urging us to live out of a certain way. And the Bible does both, and so we need the eyes to understand, well, is this a descriptive text, or is this a prescriptive text with moral exhortation? Answer, Judges 11 descriptive text. It's reporting what happens. Does that make sense? You got to know and you got to understand that. Secondly, it was a vow that he should have broken. After he made it, he should have broken it. You know, in Leviticus chapter 5, there is actually a clause where God will, if you make a vow that's rash and tragic, that you can make reparations for it and just break it. And what's very interesting is, think about that, his daughter's gone away for two months. All Jephthah has to do is say, run down to the temple and say, you know I made a horrible vow. I made a horrible promise to the Lord and I need to break it. I need to get out of it. And the priest would have said, okay, here are your your monetary reparations that you can make. And if Jephthah would have said, I don't have enough money to do it, then the priest could have assigned him something for him to be able to pay. After all, Jephthah is the leader of, of God's people, so I think he would have had enough money to be able to do that. And here's what you need to see. Sometimes it's more sinful to keep a vow than it is to break it. And Jephthah shows us this. Most importantly, here's the question. Why didn't Jephthah break the vow? Here it is. Because Jephthah did not understand a God of sheer, radical, and free grace. He didn't know that. Jephthah believed the only way to curry God's favor was to perform for him. Sadly, he was trapped in his own understanding of who God was. Jephthah's life urges us to consider several things. I can say so much about this. Um, I just want to say it, touch on a couple here. First, I want you to see that Christians tend to be more shaped by their culture than we think. Just like Jephthah was shaped, his view of God was shaped by the surrounding areas around him. So you and I are actually more shaped than we would like to think. we got blind spots all over us. Okay, And sure, it might not be that you and I are about to run out and kill our children. But if other cultures were to look at us, I mean, just ask international students about the status of the American church. They'll tell you what they see because they're coming from a different vantage point. But if you just ask, if you just see this, is that all of us have these little cultural blind spots and we would say, man, I can't believe that that's going on. For example, here, just think about this. Think about success and power in the life of Christians. It's nasty. And many non-Christians are right in their assessment of our behavior. We say that we follow Jesus and we take the Bible seriously, but we look no different with how we use our money, how we use our time, how we use our bodies. And Judges 11 urges us to see that. Moreover, what about that, uh, that desire for the perfect size number two dress? If I could just become a number two, right? No, wait, better yet, size zero, Right because we're so image-obsessed. We fear we might be seen as unwanted, so we do anything to lower our body size. Friends, that is an idol. And Jesus is inviting us, by His grace, to come out from underneath it. I want to say this, it also highlights the importance of knowing God rightly. Our theology really does matter. Do we know the God of the Bible as He has been revealed to us as well as we say we do? You know what? Jephthah didn't, and he thought he did. And it forces us to always come back to the Scriptures to be shaped by what they say. Jephthah shows us that bad theology is not just wrong with respect to what is true. That bad theology can actually be harmful to ourselves and others. Listen, think about this. I saw this as an ad the other day on some Christian site that y'all need to, I want to blow it out of the water. Here it is. This is pretty common. If you're not a Christian, this is insider lingo, and it's kind of silly, but deal with us on this. Um, the example of sort of finding the one for marriage, that phrase, finding the one. Where's the harm in this thought, you might think? Well, here you go, ready? How do you know who the one is? Who is that? Do you know the degree of certainty required to establish that in your mind? Moreover, you realize that if this is true, you actually may have missed him or her. And that ought to cause you to be highly neurotic and anxious. They may have already passed you by, and you might be confined to singleness for the rest of your days, a desire that you do not want. Do you see? Finding the one theology is real. It will make you neurotic, always worrying about putting on your best so that someone else will have you, which is not really you in the first place, but a trumped up fake version of yourself. Theology matters. It's harmful if you get it wrong because it hurts you. This is what Jephthah is trying to show us over and over again. Lastly, for the non-Christian, just a point of application. I just want to say this, that if you're somebody here tonight that has rejected or said no to Christianity, I want to say this. On the one hand, I'm so, so glad that you're here tonight investigating the story of God as revealed in the Bible. That is incredibly bold and courageous of you to come in here tonight. And yet, I just want to suggest this. There are many who don't know what they've rejected. They don't know that. And I think it might be more intellectually honest to say something like this. I'm I'm just unsure about Christianity and I want to learn more before I reject or accept it. For what it's worth, we want this, RUF, to always be a place where that can happen. Even the most seasoned Christians, myself included, still have their questions and doubts And they are entirely safe with Jesus. Maybe you. Maybe you could believe that yours are too. Lastly and most importantly, Judges 11 pushes us to consider how we view salvation itself. That's the key. There are two options, y'all. One, the way of every other religion or philosophy in the world. Here it is. Here's the path to God. Now go do it. But the gospel, Christianity says... Everything has been done for you. Now go live out of that new identity. It's the difference between do and done. And Jeff, the thought that he could earn God's blessings by bargaining with God. But God will not be bargained with. He only operates on the principles of grace. So where you are tempted, and where are you tempted to negotiate with God? Well, see, we might say something like this. If I don't have sex, Lord... Will you give me a spouse that I'm longing for? You hear it? You hear the bargain in there? I'm not going to have sex so that I can get the husband or the wife. And so the question is, if I don't have sex, will God do that? Here it is. He might. He might not. Either way, it won't be be because of your sexual resume. Do you see that? Because it's not like he looks at your sexual resume and goes, "Mm, pretty good, pretty bad. Well, I don't know. Oh, this is easy. File this. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that, that's not how God works. It will be because of his grace, and grace is what Jephthah ultimately didn't know. So I ask, do you know it? Do you know it? I love what the book of Titus says. He saved us, not because of works done by us, in righteousness, but what? According to his own mercy, so that by being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Grace always upends our workspace salvation. It is the hardest thing to hear. You can't earn or work your way into God's heart. And that is really, really hard to hear. It's not gospel logic. But it's also the sweetest news to know that God accepts you on the basis of His good pleasure, on the basis of His mercy and His grace. That is gospel logic. Here it is. That because God delights in you, he sends Jesus for you. And this is the hope for those of us with Jephthah hearts. The gospel logic says, accepted, now do. The anti-gospel logic says, go do, and then you'll be accepted. And the second one wears us out like crazy. In closing, one of my favorite writers, theologians, Robert Capone, writes about how we know we have a different life. And that it comes by trusting, not in ourselves, but in the work of another. And in one of my very favorite quotes, I'm going to share it with you at length, so please bear with me as we read this together. He says this, how can we know? Here it is, trust Him. And when you have done that, you are living the life of grace. No matter what happens to you in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings you may have, no matter how many suspicions that you have brought, that you have bought a poke with no pig in it, No matter how much heaviness and sadness your heart, your lapses, vices, indispositions, and bratty whining may cause you, you believe simply that somebody else, by his death and resurrection, has made it all right. And you just say thank you and shut up. The whole slot closet full of mildewed performances, which is all you have to offer, is simply your death. It is Jesus who is your life. If he refused to condemn you because of your works, because your works were rotten, he certainly isn't going to flunk you because your faith isn't so hot. You can fail utterly therefore and still live the life of grace. You can fold up spiritually, morally, or intellectually and still be safe because at the very worst all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life. That makes you his cup of tea. Capone is saying what Jephthah's Jeff, Jeff, failures point to. The God of the Bible always and only saves on the principle of grace and favor. Mark Twain got it right. Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would get in. How can we know we have this grace? Because God Himself and Jesus came and lived the life that all of us should have lived. And because we don't, Jesus also dies the death that we ought to have died. Jephthah is the imperfect deliverer whose words cost his child's life. He turned worship into negotiation with God. However, Jesus is the son who willingly gave his life for us that we might be delivered. Jephthah opens his mouth and condemns his beloved. While Jesus was, as Isaiah 53, 7 tells us, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. And for all those who, as Capone says, shut up and say thank you, there is a silence that receives grace. It bargains nothing and only receives what Jesus has done for us is that yours? Is that yours tonight? It can be, even now. Let's pray.